Hello and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and mavericks. <laughs> I'm your user experience maverick, Roman Burkott. <laughs> Joining me as always is Larry King. Larry, how are you? I'm doing super. Thanks for asking. <laughs> And a very exciting first for UX Like Us. Joining us today is Kevin M. Hoffman, author of the book Meeting Design. Kevin, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The topic for today is really around sort of organizational culture and what that means in the work that we do in UX all the time. So um, I, I think a lot of times when we talk about you know, what we do as UX designers, you know, a lot of people think designs just like, well, you, you know, you make these designs and then people, you know, implement them and, you know, it's really uh, a super easy process. But what it comes down to though, is like, there's lots of people involved and, and lots of more complexities than people would normally imagine that it would take to actually get good product design into people's hands. Um, and one of those big barriers that that we've you know we talked about you know when we were talking about the topic for the show is about how organizational culture can often be sort of the strongest force in any design project, any sprint, any thing when you're trying to get anything done really in organizational culture, and it tends to dominate and govern what succeeds and fails in UX design. So, um, and we want to talk about that. So, um, I'm really. Excited to hear your thoughts, Kevin, on organizational culture and and how you think it affects um, product delivery and UX design. My background is on both being in-house and being in, a, in an agency. So working in a consulting capacity. I worked at a, a, a boutique agency, a small agency, and then I also started an agency. And combined, it was probably about nine or ten years. Then I've been in uh, the rest of my career has been in house, probably more than ten years in house. And I think the more the the interesting thing about working in agencies and the interesting thing about being in house is being able to look across cultures and being able to say, oh, this thing that I learned how to do as a UX director at an agency, you know, how I learned how to sell work or framework or 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 be persuasive of a particular research methodology, usually there are elements of what made it work that I assume I can port to other contexts. Like I was able to sell uh, or pitch, and I think we're always selling, whether we're in-house or not. I, you know, you don't have to use the word sell. You could say I was able to convince or I was able to, to, uh, to prove the value of I was able to prove the value of usability testing uh, in this context. And the context was, uh, it was a, a six-figure website redesign, and they had particular business goals, and we wanted to be able to, to um, build usability testing into the process because we thought we would hit the goals better actually observing users, which now feels very commonplace, but probably 10 years ago, it was still kind of an upsell. Um, and for some agencies, I, I think it's it's a tough sell to sell research as part of, of of UX work. But the idea that I could take whatever I used to convince or or persuade people of the value in one context, pop it into a new context like a Lego, and then expect the same success, <laughs> I think yeah. that's a thing that we in my career I've learned. Oh, that doesn't it never works that way. Um, 
that often I have to kind of put on my user research lens on the organization itself to say, oh, how does stuff get made here um, in order to be successful or to look at why something didn't uh, didn't work. So that's, sure. Sure. I mean, I think I think a lot of people earlier in your career, you have this, I think people get, re- I know I got really excited about models. I got excited about the idea of doing a sitemap or the idea of doing wireframes or, 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 or you know, developing my own uh, opinions and process and maybe even my signature process. When I do an agile sprint, I do it this way and I run my retrospective like this and whatever. But I feel like it takes time or it takes working in multiple contexts to start to realize oh, so much of my own method is a function of the culture I was in at the time. And I think that's really interesting. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's funny. I Actually, I uh, just when we were getting set up earlier today, um, I saw Sarah B. Nelson, um, who I, I think is now at IBM. Um, she was basically asking this very question, you know, to these companies who hire these, uh, you know, consultants to come in and try to, teach you how to do things, um, what is it that you're looking to get out of that? Because, uh, you know, the, the context is so massively different. She's an interesting person. That, like, she, I would love to hear her perspectives on that. I've talked to Sarah a couple of times over the years. Um, we actually worked together on a project a long time ago. But the work that Sarah does at IBM, at least most recently, I, I saw Sarah last year, and she's been working on trying to take design thinking as a methodology. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, research, uh, hypothesize, iterate, and, and evaluate, uh, however you want to quantify design thinking. That's, you know, the four-step design thinking process. And trying to go throughout IBM's many sales organizations. So we're talking uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of different sales people and teach them how to use design thinking to evaluate the success of their sales efforts and develop and design really new approaches to sales mm-hmm. for one of the largest companies in the world. And like, if ever there was a case study about cultural adaptation, certainly in the enterprise, I mean, at the enterprise level, culture is a, a culture of cultures. So, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about Sarah's work, at least the work that she did on the design thinking and, and sales piece, it's just fascinating to imagine like, you know, oh, we're able to help this team do it, but now we go to the, we, we, we help the Watson team figure out, you know, how to use design thinking in, in selling Watson's API. Now we're going over to the, I can't make up an IBM team. Somebody make up an IBM team. <laughs> the, the PC team, the IBM PC team. Yeah, the P. The, yeah, because IBM PCs are all the rage these days. So, you know, the PC team. How do we incorporate design thinking and the 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 context, the constraints, the way success is imagined, the way that people have uh, what I would call like currency in the culture, which is like, oh, when this person says something, it actually people pay attention, you know. Uh, or there's fear, or there's excitement, or energy, or whatever. I don't know. It's all it's all interesting to me, and I feel like it's been like everyone's career. Hopefully, is a is a career of lifelong learning. 
but in this particular space, I feel like you can never stop learning. Like the, the minute you feel like you understand a culture, that's when you are doomed, I think. Yeah, so I want to dig into the little bit when you you just talked about um, having cultural currency and being able to use that to your, you know, the people with the most cultural currency have sort of the most uh, sort of pull into how things get done or, you know, how things work. And mm-hmm. I think that's really, it's a very interesting one because, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed too in some, in some of the situations I've been in where it's like you have to build those. You, you have to build a lot of relationships to be able to get to that, that cultural currency. And then even in within a similar company, you could, you know, build up that currency and then have a merger happen and completely lose all that currency. Cause you have all this new people coming in that have their own currency with certain people in certain circles. And it's just yep. a, it's, it's almost a constant battle just to like, you know, keep that currency so that you can affect how things happen and, and how decisions are made and, and, and have your influence on getting, you know, good product out the door. And it's, 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 it's even, you know, you talked about the situation in IBM where you're going from team to team and you have to treat each one of those things differently because the cultures are different and they're going to, you know, those ideas and approaches are going to soak in differently and you have to use different techniques to get that. But even within the same organization, you can just have a, uh, you know, a massive change in leadership or uh, a merger or anything like that can also throw off that balance. And then you kind of have to go back to the drawing board and start all over again. Yeah. One of the, one of my experiences in when I was working in an enterprise organization is though the one of the managerial strategies of the organization was above a certain level of executive they would regularly rotate senior leadership so the the thinking there is oh you know we'll be able to find our best senior leaders by putting them in multiple contexts and seeing who can be successful in in multiple contexts the the effect of that on product design, uh, my my experience anyway, that what I saw is that just like you said, you you basically go into a rebuilding mode where it's like, oh, I I built trust, I built you know, I I, I built this belief in a partner, in a business partner or product partner that I am able to deliver on my promises, you know. And then they rotate the leadership at a, at either the level you're at or the, or a higher level, and it's like, oh, now we got to rebuild all that again. And uh, to me, it's it's an interesting challenge of large organizations. Um, it's one that it, that particular organization was. I think it was a unique to their managerial strategy. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough about enterprise orgs. Do do they always rotate like executive VPs and VPs like that? Do you guys know? I don't know. I don't. I have I limited experience. I think that's like the GE model, like that uh, they popularized, and uh, that was based off of uh, military management. So, military makes a point of rotating people periodically, so people will be in an assignment for three to four years, and then they got to do something else. And if you're not rotating, then that's a a bad mark on your career. This is a fun exercise. It is for me. You guys tell me if this is fun. What are all the military terms we use when we talk about culture, like command and control is a military (laughs) term, but like, that's a, like a lot of people will say, Oh, is this a democratic culture or command and control culture? Uh, FUBAR is a term 
that I hear when like you're you're coming into a context and they're like, well, what's what's you know what do we have to, what are we dealing with here? Oh, it's foobar. It's you know that's a military term. What are the other military greatest hits? Roman, you're the one with the military background, so you probably have a better uh, finger on that. Is fud is that a is that a is that a military term? Fear. I don't know if it originated, but I've certainly heard it in a military context. Uh, right. What does it stand for? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's what, like, when you're talking to salespeople and enterprise sales and stuff, they'll they use that as you know as a sales tool to you know make the other um, you know make the competitors look bad. It's like, oh well, you know, they'll set up things that that inspire fear, uncertainty, and doubt about the competition. In order, that's to, a sales you, strategy. You oh, absolutely. <laughs> Oh my God, that's evil. <laughs> I want to, I want to be in that conversation where we're planning that's the sales one. cycle and yeah. it's like, what will we say to create fear in our, in our potential customers? <laughs> we want to make them afraid of our competitors. So what will we say? God, that's dark. <laughs> How many design briefs have you come across that say that, but maybe just don't come out and say that? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we work in the security industry and there are, you know, there's people in the security industry that, uh, you know, have had um, bad security incidents. Like, you know, people like, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, was it LastPass or OneLogin? OneLogin. Um, RSA back in the day had a really big breach and they had to change the, the the entire way that they do the keys for their, you know, their RSA tokens and things like that. And so, yeah, absolutely. You know, your competitors are going to take that and say, Hey, look, these guys got popped, you know, you don't want to go with yeah. them. You should go with us. We don't, uh, you know, we don't have a history of, you know, having security incidents. So but if that, I'm, that's absolutely if I'm, a tool. Yeah. If I'm putting on my military hat and I'm looking at you, Roman, tell me if this is good military strategy isn't don't i want to make the assumption that it's going to happen like it that that in if i'm in the security business let's assume it's eventually going to happen and we want to plan for that you know maybe that's not your sales pitch but you know i would assume like on some level if you're designing security experiences you're designing for disaster you know once the once the mega breaches started happening there was a lot of different players, uh, former employer, employer of mine included, that was trying to play kind of like an, an insurance angle. Like, so when you uh, have a breach, we're going to help you recover. And I don't, I don't think that sells all that well. <laughs> yeah, there's been, it's been, that's been um, a common thing for a, a few um, enterprise soft cybersecurity software companies where they'll like have an insurance policy. It's like if you buy this level of our product um, and you get breached. And we don't detect it, you know. They'll be, they'll have some some sort of insurance policy that 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 pays out for for damages that happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's really, I mean, if you look at any mature security company, they, they you know, they don't just they, they or any mature security practice in general, you can't just look at you know preventing because you're never gonna prevent every single thing that's happening that that's gonna yeah. come at you, right? Um, so you have to be able to prevent, detect, prevent, and also respond when you you ultimately get breached. Because as a former um, um, uh, person that I used to work for, that you know his mantra was breaches are inevitable, and so yeah. you have to be prepared for what what you're going to do and how you're going to respond when it ultimately happens to you, because there's no way to actually prevent every single breach from happening. I wish that was the motto for whale watching. <laughs> breaches are inevitable. <laughs> I feel like it's always, we hope, but we never get the breaches. <laughs> I, I've been only been on one whale watching tour and we saw several breaches. So it was, oh, really? Was it yeah, Hawaii? Yeah, we must've got lucky. No, it was up in, uh, up in Cape Cod. 
Oh, that's <laughs> you got I'll really lucky there. I can count on one hand. I can count on two hands the number of whale watches I've been on, and I can count on one finger the number of breaches I've seen. So <laughs> you got really. Oh wait, no, there was one time where I was on in Alaska where I saw a whale just going over and over and over for a while. That was cool. Anyway, um, uh, now there's a design uh, we'll have to do a show on sometime. Whale watching tours. <laughs> How can we affect the organizational culture of whales to get them to breach more when there are tours around? <laughs> Put food at the surface, dude. You just chum. <laughs> all this stupid law about not being able to be a certain uh, certain number of yards within a whale. If we didn't have that, we could breach. We could we could make them perform for us. Um, with culture and design, something else that's interesting to me uh, that occurred to me uh, before, um, like when I was thinking about this, it's interesting to think about the evolution of the role of design in a culture. So, you know, when I started my career uh, as a full-time designer, uh, my title was webmaster and I worked at a, at a college <laughs> and I was designing the website, you know, as my job, but culturally I was caught in this tug of war between technology and marketing. So organizationally, they didn't think of design as certainly it wasn't something that was at the executive level. Mm -hmm. um, and it was some hybrid of, oh, marketing is how we look, or our, uh, if you're, you're more sophisticated, it's our voice. It's what we say in the marketplace and how we differentiate ourselves. And technology is how we pay our bills, essentially. So that's how people get their tuition payments to us and how we track what courses they've taken and a million other things that now are in databases. I feel like if you look at the the economy and the economies move towards service as a product. So it's not about getting your your iPod or iPhone as the case may be. It's about the iTunes platform, the service of it. It's not about um, you know uh, having a laptop. It's about the the Mac OS ecosystem or the Windows ecosystem or whatever ecosystem. It's the service as a product. The more we've moved towards service as a product, the more you can see design occupying a significant part of the strategic conversation at the at the highest level. And certainly, with uh, you know major platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and you know the ones that kind of created Silicon Valley, and then you know the 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 biggest one of all, like Google. Um, they kind of made design part of business at the highest level, at the strategic level. Um, I remember there was a, either it was a rumor or there was a post why Doug Bowman left Google. Doug Bowman was the head of design for search not too long ago, probably more than five or six years ago. But I think he posted it in his blog and he was talking about how he was having to debate with engineers uh, which color blue was better. And the engineers were saying, well, we have this data on this many thousands of users with this color blue and this data on this many thousand users. And these are both statistically significant. So we know this blue is better because it's you know less time on task or better click-through rate or whatever. And that that culture ultimately design was never going to get past engineering in the conversation. 
you know, um, regardless of which color blue was right. I think, and I'm trying to remember where I saw this, but I read this recently, um, this idea that now that technology and engineering structures and this idea of having these engineering squads and the following agile methodology. Oh, I see. It was a, it was a conversation. I think that Peter Merholz was having with somebody. I don't remember who it was, but, but anyway, they were talking on Twitter about how if engineering teams drive work at enterprise organizations, design is often seen as a bottleneck, you know, design is seen as <laughs> design is seen as slowing the culture. I'm curious why you're laughing. Does that oh. sound real? Does it sound familiar? I've had a dollar for every time I heard that design was a bottleneck. So the, the hypothesis is the reason people believe design is a bottleneck is because it's an engineering driven culture that we're trying to spend the, we're trying to cost, uh, to be most efficient with our costs in engineering. We don't want to have anybody not working at any time. And we have this many engineers, mm-hmm. so we need this much for them to make. You know, by that reasoning, uh, NASCAR mechanics would be a lot faster if there were no body panels on those cars. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting because there's, I mean, I've witnessed many different types of cultures, right? Like, so, you know, you talked about engineering driven culture and, and, and some of the things that happens with that, like, you know, design being seen as a bottleneck. Um, there's also, you know, I've also seen, you know, very sales, um, oriented, uh, you know, uh, led cultures where, you know, you have a, uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I, mostly talk from the enterprise software um, point of view, because that's what I've I'm been, you know, living for the last, you know, seven years. Um, but, uh, you know, a sales led um, organization where it's like, you know, sales drives all product decisions, you know, and not, not from a, a deep, Hey, we did some real, you know, deep design research where we have deep understanding of the customer problems that we're, we're dealing with. It's more of a, Oh yeah. Uh, my c- customer, the person, the buyer persona or whoever is, is saying we need X, Y, and Z. So let's, we got to get this up because this is a million dollar deal and you need to do it now. Right. So, so they've already sold the design. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you're doing as much design for a sales pitch as you are doing it for actual customers. I mean, that 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 reminds me of like it, when I was in agencies um and uh, when I think about agencies I think about there's so many different kinds of agencies there's agencies that are more user experience agencies there are agencies that are more digitally focused there are classic agencies that are like advertising agencies with giant teams that will basically do a lot of free design to to pitch work um, I was at a when I was at a small agency, we would occasionally compete against those larger agencies, and we would go pitch a client like CBS, uh, and we would pitch CBS, and they would be like, "Oh, where are your comps of our new website? Like, didn't you already do that?" And we'd be like, "No, that's not how we work. We want to know what we want to know what you believe is the problem, and then we want to see proof of that problem existing in the world." And we don't do that for free, you know. We don't just design uh, uh, based on what we believe all that stuff is. That's what you pay us to do. But um, it was really hard to we. I mean, we didn't win that pitch. You couldn't win those pitches because they they would say, you know, oh, draft uh, FCB or or uh, uh, I can't think of any other agencies at the moment, but the big you know the big ones, uh, RGA. You know, they'll come in. And they have teams of designers that are just cranking out these comps in the hope of 
of yeah. landing the you know five million dollar or ten million dollar CBS account. And the reason I think that happens is because I think there's this role in agencies of the account manager in in agency culture. There's this account manager role, and it's kind of similar to like the currency we talked about. Like an account manager in in a, in a really large agency has a lot of currency from the client's perspective. The account manager is seen, depending on the, the the agency, the account manager can be seen as like the person that could actually get the designs the way we want them to be. Um, and I've seen actually, I've seen agencies go under, like either go out of business or just um, you know get absorbed into you know, like get uh, aqua hired uh, because the there was so much tension between account managers making promises to clients and designers wanting to actually learn about and do a good user experience. Like um, that 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 kind of butting of heads. Um, I know of one agency uh, that that they went out of business because they couldn't resolve that cultural tension. Yeah, I had that same experience when I worked in agencies as well, you'd have account managers that would sell something to a customer because that's what they thought they could sell to them. And, you know, they had this, you know, list of tasks that UX people would do and they would, you know, try to assemble something that they could sell. And then it would get to me and I would take a look at this list and I would go, you know, have the kickoff meeting with the customer. And then I would like, oh, wait a minute, you don't need this, this, and this. You need to actually, we actually need to dig into these three things. And we're going to need to do some research with these type of people and all this. And it would be, we would have to renegotiate negotiate the task list and try to stay yeah. within the budget so that we could actually provide real value to the customer as opposed to, oh, we're going to do all these fake tasks because that's what we sold you, but there's, they're really not benefiting you. But that's an, that brings up another interesting cultural, like if I was going to go back and listen to this conversation and look for like, what could I start paying attention to or think about around culture? We talked about having cultural currency. Another thing is, I think how we estimate cost, the cost of work, is it, like however that's estimated. And if it's estimated by an account manager talking to uh, a, a, a client, or if it's estimated by a project manager, or if it's estimated by a scrum master, however we estimate the cost of getting work done often is very closely tied to the culture of, of how design is expressed at that company. You know, I don't know. I think that's interesting. I always like making models. <laughs> I was just sitting here thinking how funny it is that agencies love to give away free design work, but nobody's ever offering to do free research. You know, in my mind, I remember at least one or two pitches where we would try to do fake research <laughs> in advance. Like that's what like those Forrester reports are for or like, you know, you buy a, a, a Nielsen Norman report on what users do and you go in oh, armed right. with that kind of research. So it's not fake research, but it's like, it's like, um, what do they say? Uh, they talk about like the scent of, of truth. It's truthiness. So it's like, can you talk about the, the people we think are users with enough intelligence based on Oh well, we believe you know four out of ten people don't look b b beneath the fold based on you know this uh, Nielsen Norman report or whatever. Um, if you go in with that, it's a type of currency. I think that's another type of cultural 
cultural cultural currency, which is the appearance of knowledge. You know, um, there's a really interesting blog post about um, the opposite of imposter syndrome. Did you guys catch that? No, that sounds f- awesome. There's a lot of discussion and writing in UX around imposter syndrome. There was a, a, a woman, I'm not sure, I don't remember her name, but if you Google the term, she wrote this, this post about blowhard syndrome. And blowhard syndrome is the kind of opposite of imposter syndrome where you actually think you know what you're talking about, but you haven't done your research. And I think, you know, in my experience, uh, both running an agency and um, working in an agency, there, there, people respond to blowhard syndrome sometimes in positive ways. Sometimes it gets work sold or it gets ideas through, you know, like the, the, just the appearance of confidence in the, even if it's in the absence of proof. That's why I'm a user experience maverick. Yeah. <laughs> maverick is, that's kind of a, uh, that has like a blowhardy connotation to it, I think. I don't know. All the, all the instances of uh, blowhard syndrome that I've ever seen um, were not good things. <laughs> and they were typically in people in positions of power and mm-hmm. they knew everything. And they typically had the top down um, command and control type of management style. And you just look at this and it's just like, wow, Fubar. how did this person get, how did this person even get to this position yeah. and then, and be so incompetent, but yet be so confident in that incompetence. Yeah. That, that, and th- that, that, question in and of itself, I think is a function of culture. Absolutely. Which is why are the people in the positions that they're in? If you know the answer to that, like in my experience, organizations where people really have a handle on what the currency is, are able to kind of survive those organizations. That's one of the questions I ask when I find myself in a new context. If I know I'm going to be there for a while, I always ask like, Hey, you seem to know what you're doing. What's, what's, what's your secret? What is the, how, what makes this, this clock tick, um, as you see it, like, how does this, how does this organization really get work done? Um, and you know, when I was at a large company that was, it was always interesting how many different answers you get. And then if you could find a narrative that would help you get your work done inside of all those different answers. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a it's a it's a good technique for trying to figure out how to you know gain that currency of culture by you know looking at the people that are actually successful in getting things done in an organization and figure out you know why are you successful? Yeah, um, I'm interested in other um, sort of levers that you can use to begin to you know you know uh, uh, affect culture change in, in an organization. Like, you know, one of the things is, you know, building relationships, looking for those people that are successful and try to figure out, you know, what makes them successful and having that currency. Um, there was an interesting presentation. I saw at the design ops summit um, uh, a couple of years back. Um, mm-hmm. And it was um, by Aaron Hoffman, John, she's like the CEO of this company called sense of wonder. It's a video game company. And she was talking about, sort of ecosystems and video game ecosystems and how they set those up and they, and they, they set up rules for the ecosystem um, in order for it to sort of function. And it gives it its character and its culture. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And she talked about uh, different things that they, different levers that they can pull within an, an, um, an ecosystem in order to, create that change that they're looking for to, to either improve the gameplay or do something that, that that's needed to, to change 
the environment of that ecosystem. And it was interesting because she had like this, this, um, this continuum of levers going from very small levers that make really small changes to big levers that make really big changes. Um, and figuring out, you know, where the, the, the levers that you need to pull, because pulling the big chain, the, the big levers requires you to have a lot of control already. You know, you need to be C level or somebody that can like be, you know, be top down mandate things, you know, be that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh um, opposite of imposter syndrome guy, the blowhard syndrome thing, yeah. right. In order to get that done or, you can figure out how to pull a bunch of little levers and in order to, to, you know, start to, 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 to create that change. So I thought it was very interesting to like, think about, you know, culture as sort of an ecosystem and being able to, to find ways to affect it by, you know, finding the levers that you have the ability to pull and, and, and start to move things in a direction that you think is, 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 is a better. Yeah. I love, I love that. I think there are two questions that come out of that for me. One is, is culture something you can change? Um, I think there's a lot of desire for change. I think it's a change. The promise of, of a different thing in a way that's better than what I have now is always a motivator for everybody. But culture is a thing that I feel like, I almost feel like culture is, is like something you can fertilize and you can water, but I don't feel like you can drive it. So like, you know, I can water a plant and I can maybe, you know, control certain aspects of the soil, the acidity of the soil, um, but I can't actually make the plant grow the way I expect it to grow. It's going to grow. It's, it might pull towards the sun. Um, it, it might, you know, throw a random leaf in a weird direction. I mean, um, I, the, the, there's an unpredictability to culture that I think like starting to think, okay, we want to change the culture, it gets into change management stuff. And, and there's a reason that stuff doesn't always work a lot of the time. The other thing that, that you said that I think is really interesting about the video game ecosystem metaphor is thinking about the scale of impact you want to affect in a situation and designing for that. Because I think, you know, very often I, well, I don't know if it's often, but I've certainly experienced coming into a large culture and people describing large generalizations around the culture. Like, this is a data-driven culture. This is a, you know, we, we are a culture of business analysts and we make decisions based on data. So if you have data, then, you know, that'll, that'll win here. And I think you can make those kind of generalizations, but what that usually leads to is, I don't know if it usually leads to it, but I would imagine it, I, I've experienced it leading to kind of rigidity about process where it's like, I'm in pursuit of data and I'm not actually paying attention to what's happening. Cause it's like, I'm just trying to get to that next KPI. I'm just trying to get to that next, you know, key result. And if, and in pursuit of that, I'm not actually open to the doors that are opening based on whatever we're advancing in the iterative process, you know, I don't know. Does that resonate with either of you? Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I think that I've seen people and cultures where, you know, the numbers are everything, you know, that drives everything, that data. Right. And that, and mm -hmm. it's usually like quantitative data, quantitative data drives everything. And they just like, you know, since, you know, the whole mantra of you, you can't measure it, you can't ma manage it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Peter Drucker but, said that. Exactly. But 
here's the thing. People like take that and think it's like, oh, if I can't measure it with a number and compare it to a number that is a different, you know, from the past or the future or across different people or anything like that. Um, but I think that doesn't tell the whole story because there's also qualitative data and qualitative data tells you in my mind, much richer, more, you know, um, you get much more richer information from that than you can from, you know, a bunch of numbers. And I see a lot of people who, instead of managing, they just like measure and then make decisions based on numbers as opposed to, you know, you know, managing by like gathering all the information and actually having to make a decision as opposed to, well, the number said this, so we're going to go with that. Right. Yeah. It's like abdicating the responsibility of taking a position on a thing yes. and and taking a position really underneath it. You have to actually have values aligned to the work that you're doing yep. where it's it's not just like, oh, we want more people to buy our widgets. So <laughs> if we sell more widgets, that's the behavior that we'll do. But it's like we want people to buy more widgets because of a particular personal value. Um yeah. The other thing that popped into my head when you were talking about that is like how people manage and how organizations, what what element of culture is management? And one of the things I think is really important uh, that is something that I'm always learning and hopefully getting better at and, and growing in my work is in terms of thinking about management and leadership and, and the role that that plays in a culture, recognizing that you know, despite whatever you want to believe, despite this, uh, the desire for leadership and management to be an idealized version of, of the people they manage, the reality is a lot of that decision-making is very emotionally driven. Uh, it's, it's, it's informed by numbers. In, in a good case, it's also informed by qualitative data. But ultimately, you know, the, uh, people who make management decisions about the direction of investment in, a, in, in products and, and what features we build and what features we don't and ultimately what market we're getting into, they're human beings that have their own emotional triggers that have uh, the same you know, uh, deeply rooted emotional behaviors um, that everyone has. And I think you know, one thing that I've seen that's really interesting in a company is when you can start to understand the emotional life of management. If you can start to really observe, this is why the leaders at this company are passionate about this thing. This is how their emotionally, their emotional compass for the way they make decisions. The conversations become very rich and very different. Mm. You know, um, it's not just about proof. Um, it's not just about models and diagrams, but it starts to become more about um, the mission. And if the mission is truly customer, helping customers in whatever vertical you're in, if the mission really is helping customers, then like if you can understand the emotional relationship that leadership has to those customers and what they really hope and want for those people, um, you're able to have very rich I, I've been able to have very rich, powerful conversations with uh, managers at companies that way. That's a really cool uh, perspective on that. It, it reminds me of um, manager tools. They talk about using the disk profile to understand uh, everybody's different currency. So talking to a, a given person, you know, um, and I'm not that familiar with the disk profile myself, uh, but 
you might know, oh, what that guy cares about is shipping stuff. So if you want to get through to him, if you want to orient yourself to his world, it's, hey, you know, here's how we get to shipping. Um, and everybody has their different kind of perspective. Uh, that, that's a, a really cool approach, though, to take the, the emotional life uh, into account rather than just saying, oh, this guy's, uh, you know, a, a numbers driven guy or or for that matter, you know, he's he's a hothead and likes to shoot from the hip. Yep. At the last company I was at, they used this thing called personalysis. I, I would imagine it's a competitor to the disc profile thing, but it would be like, you know, are you more driven by simplicity or complexity? Are you more driven um, by providing support or, uh, you know, getting results? Uh, you know, like what's your relationship to process? Do you want it to be consistent? Do you want it to be co consistently like changing uh, consistently changing. That's funny. Um, <laughs> do you, and you know, what's your relationship to purpose? Like, do you want clarity of purpose or do you want flexibility of purpose, you know, or precision? Like the, those are the, those are the four that are on like, and you, you would get it on your ID and it would be something you carry nice. around. Um, wow. so I'm looking at my like old ID. There's like a chart on my ID. That's fantastic. I'm mostly yellow and orange and not that red and blue, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that means. So Larry, you get bonus points for having uh, used a, a Peter Drucker quote. Another <laughs> great Peter Drucker quote is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, unfortunately, Peter Drucker doesn't appear to have actually ever said that, but he's the one who always gets uh, attributed to. And so I wanted, uh, Kevin, you to talk to us a little bit about that. Um, I, I'm always shocked by how frequently organizations um, don't actively design their culture or for that matter, uh, you'll see when they'll um, when they try to just say, "Oh, this is the culture we want," without actually doing things to engender that culture. So, I wanted you to talk a little bit about, like, do you have uh, thoughts or recommendations around how do you actually get more of the follow through instead of just the wishing? Yeah. There's two things that I am experimenting with right now in, in my practice. Um, culture mapping is a, a tool that's been around for, I think, four or five years that was developed uh, by a colleague of mine named Dave Gray. So if you Google culture mapping, it's, a, it's kind of a visual process for mapping out what um, the culture looks like. And it's a way to start having the conversation of, oh, we believe we have this culture, but we actually you know, have these behaviors. You know, we believe we have a supportive culture, but we're actually very competitive, uh, you know, for example. And I know Dave was really inspired when he developed culture mapping. Um, Dave was really inspired by the work of Edgar Schein. Uh, Edgar Schein has a book called Humble Inquiry, which is about like the it's a short book, but it's really just about this idea that every organization has two cultures. It has the actual culture and it has an aspirational culture. And if you think of those as a Venn diagram, they could be highly overlapped. They could be really far apart. They could be overlapped in spots. You know, there's, there's no way of knowing without actually saying, okay, well, what is the difference between the two? And uh, Humble Inquiry is a methodology for kind of exploring that, for looking at like, how do I look at a culture as it exists, observe the behaviors, 
and then map that against what a, what the organization believes it, it it is or wants to be. Um, so those are a couple of things that I'm um, uh, trying to put into my process as much as I can when I work with different companies. So it sounds like um, you have to get an accounting of where you're starting before you can just jump into uh, moving in a, in a particular direction. Yeah, I, I think of it this way. Everybody's working on themselves. Like, I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm highly suspicious of anyone and any company that says we're exactly the person or organization we want to be. Um, I, I, individually, I feel like there's always things that I'm going to be working on in my life, trying to change about myself, trying to improve. And I feel like organizations should have a similar attitude in terms of as an organism, it, it should be aware of its faults and be ready to examine those faults and think about, well, how could I actually make change in this organization to get to address the faults that we have? You know, um, I'll give you an, a concrete example that isn't a changeable thing. Uh, in a large organization that I worked in, the way that promotions were distributed had to be on a, a bell curve, meaning we had to, to like, w- let's say we had 100 people on a team. Uh, around promotions, we would do something called calibration uh, mid-year and end of year, where we would try to calibrate everyone against each other in terms of performance so that we ended up with, you know, uh, at l- no more than 20% of our people essentially up at the highest levels of performance and a certain number of people below, you know, below performance. But uh, having a bell curve as a target fundamentally is in conflict with reality. You can't, <laughs> like, you can't know if, like, you could, you could hire all the top sports ball players on the team, you know, and they could all be amazing statistically like performers, like crazy good performers. But, you know, if you force that into a bell curve, you're going to have to decide if, you know, two really high performing people, which one is better. So that model, if culturally that model is not movable, like we're not going to change that we distribute our promotions this way. And, and we try to, you distribute calibration so that we actually identify what low performance means, then the behaviors that that engenders in, in conversations about performance and promotion, one of the things that comes out of that, I think, is that people prize promotion over learning. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, it becomes like a cult of promotion where it's like, I, if I can get into the top 20%, I'll know that I'm, I matter. As opposed to, I know that I matter because I actually learned how to do this work at a different scale or in a different way, or I'm growing my influence or whatever it is that I want to achieve in my career, that I'm actually measuring my value by how, how often I'm promoted or um, how close I am to a promotion. And that was definitely a conversation that I had multiple times when I was in that company. And it was, it was interesting to me because I would say to someone, don't go after the promotion. Just go after doing the work that feels authentic to you. And yet, when promotions would come around, people would be like, well, why didn't I get promoted? I did the work that I thought was authentic. And it's like, well, ultimately, maybe you didn't get promoted because we have this bell curve, and I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> you know. 
It's because you're two standard deviations less competent than your peers. I think that, you know, if we're talking about, if we're talking about um, pulling out models, like we have currency and we have um, this idea of levers, I think another, another thing to think about in culture is what are the immovables? What are the things about our culture that, that are so intractable or so deeply tied to our organization, uh, the way we do business, that we're not going to be able to change that about the culture? So how do we design around that? Yeah, I was uh, thinking about that along the same lines, but uh, a little different. Um, I was thinking about you know the things that I can do where I am in the organization right now, right? There's like mm-hmm. certain things that I can do to affect culture in a positive way. I think the biggest one for me is I had the ability to hire people, right? And adding people into a culture mm-hmm. well, has a huge effect on it because you're bringing in a certain type of people that think a certain way, that have a certain point of view, that really value design and are able to influence other people to, to also start to value design. And that's sort of like the, 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 the biggest lever that I had at the level that I am in, in changing culture is, is, is you know, by the people that I hired into the culture. Yeah. Um, but then I get to the, you know, but that's, that's, that's a roadblock because I can't hire the engineering team, right? Because I'm, yep. I don't run the engineering team. And so, you know, I, I feel like at a certain level, you can, you, you, you can have some influence, but you know, what are some of the other things that you can do without, you know, being at the, you know, at the, the C level and being able to say, Hey, we're not going to do the bell curve thing. We're actually going to incentivize people to be better for themselves. And, and by proxy that will better the organization, which is something that I think I believe it's like, I'd rather yeah. have somebody, the, it, my belief is I try to make the people on my team do the best work of their career and try to support them and try to move, remove barriers that allow them to do that. And by proxy, the company benefits from that because, you know, that's because the, now they're incentivized to, to add value to the company because they're doing really great work. Who, how do you know it's the best work of their career? Is that their judgment or your judgment or a conversation? I think it's a conversation. Um, I, 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 that's yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, we, it's a hard thing to measure number wise, but I think quanti- you know, qualitatively, if that person feels like they're doing the best work of their career, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to believe that. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that right there is a really interesting cultural expression, which is if you believe it's good, it might be enough for a particular context. Like if you believe as an employee, you're doing the best work of your career and that's really fulfilling to you because you're fulfilled by your craft. That's how you get energy. Then that becomes a really powerful cultural influence. It doesn't really matter if it's the the best work, you know, it's just the belief that it's good. Right. Hmm. What is that book? Uh, the secret <laughs> <laughs> that, that the, the, the Oprah book club book, about uh, that, 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 the secret is believing that you can do the thing. Right. I can't remember. I didn't read the secret, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> it's not a secret but, anymore. But uh, I mean, now we only got to read the secret. <laughs> but that's on slimmer, along similar lines of David Gray's, you know, liminal thinking, where it's like belief is something that is there and it's malleable and you can change it and yeah. and, and all that. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Here, here's something I'll say that I think is maybe a spark that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I think a lot of designers feel disenfranchised by their cultures. I think um, in my career, uh, I often felt like I was an evangelist for 
different levels of common sense. Um, things that made sense to me in terms of good development, uh, accessible development, universal design, uh, uh, things that made sense to me in terms of cognitive load, like don't make the menu giant, uh, things that made sense to me in terms of, you know, creating clear hierarchy of, of visuals uh, and, and using color intelligently, I would have to essentially evangelize that kind of stuff in a lot of cultures. If I think about working in universities, if I think about working with clients in an agency, and I think about working in-house in an enterprise team, there are often times where I feel like culturally, my language isn't spoken. Mm, yeah. What have you guys done? What have you found helps you successfully speak the language of design to a culture that maybe doesn't naturally speak that language? And I have a couple of ideas, but I want to hear what you guys think of. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the way I've combated that in the past is is, you know, like I said before, you know, building a team and injecting more people into the culture that have a a certain point of view about design, you know, because I can like sit there and evangelize all I all, as much as I can and give powerpoints and give presentations and talk about, you know, design, you know, company design maturity models and stuff like that, but until we still have until we have people living that culture, it's very hard to like, you know, show how that is actually effective. And I, mm -hmm. you know, so like, you know, building that team, injecting people into it has been the most successful thing for me in, in, in starting to change people's minds. But then, you know, again, you run into the barriers I talked about earlier of like, and then you get new management and you go through a merger and then you have to go through the whole, you know, you, you feel like you're back at square one, um, trying to do that same process uh, over again, because you, you're, you know, you're only at so, uh, so far up in the organization and you can't really, you know, have, you know, effects at, at, at the top level anymore until you build again, start to build that currency and be able to, to, you know, find other levers that you can pull to make changes. Mm -hmm. And I would just start by reflecting back to you. Yes. I totally identify with what you're saying there. I always feel like I'm just in a foreign environment when it comes to being a designer, basically everywhere I've been um, now at our, our current place, we have a great culture within our design team. So, you know, I feel a lot more engaged there, but you know, it, it's funny because, uh, in creating digital products, um, there's not much, uh, more of an odd couple you could put together than a designer with an engineer. And there's not much more of an odd couple you could put together than a designer and a generically labeled a, a business person. Right. So like, whereas, you know, we're all about the user, you know, that's, that's not the, um, the language of a lot of our business colleagues. And so I, I kind of wonder if the part of that, uh, that translation, that interests you most informs, you know, the trajectory of, of your design career. So like for me personally, I was so consistently frustrated by not being able to communicate with my business counterparts that I went and studied business um, so that we could converse and I would understand their their worldview more. And I know that there's a lot of designers who double down on the engineering side and they really just want to be able to to work, you know, hand in glove with with engineering teams. 
And so it, it seems like to be a designer uh, is always going to put you into this position of, of having to um, translate into somebody else's domain. Uh, actually, I think I, I saw a tweet from uh, Dana Chisnell today that was saying um, it, it's always easier to speak their language than to try to get them to understand the crazy language of, of your own domain. Yeah. I think the the idea of language as a component of culture is huge. Um, I think the idea of going into uh, any situation with a certain level of humility and assuming you don't speak the language and finding out, okay, coming out of this meeting, what are five things, five words or phrases that I would learn that I didn't have before? Um, or what are the acronyms that everybody uses? Or <laughs> or, you know, like those kinds of things, I think, end up being uh, real cultural currency. There was a lot of acronym cultural currency or just like acronyms. I remember, and the, the, I'm happy to tell this story, but it's embarrassing. It was <laughs> probably several months before I knew what anybody was talking about when they said BAU. Um, like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume both of you know the acronym BAU. I did not know that acronym, um, and people kept talking about BAU, and I was like, well, what are we trying to affect in the BAU? Are we trying to <laughs> increase the BAU or decrease the BAU? <laughs> what, and somebody what is was BAU? like, BAU is business as usual. So, oh, God. Uh, uh, so, you know, like not knowing that acronym and <laughs> not having the humility to say, I don't know what BAU is early on. You end up, I ended up being in conversations where I was trying to talk intelligently about the, about the BAU and, you know, not realizing we were just talking about, oh yeah, the way things are, <laughs> you know, that, um, so I think that's a, just kind of, I, I, some people, and I'm one of these people, I will not use acronyms in writing. So when I'm writing reports, doing presentations, whatever, um, if I use an acronym, it's only after I've spelled it out for the first time, even for the most in-house, you know, uh, culture, sure. uh, because I, I just feel like anything that removes barriers of understanding or even, you know, um, reminds us that these things mean things, you know, that we can't shorten everything into, into millennial speak or, or, you know, <laughs> LOLs and, and whatnot, but you can't say everything with a anyway. emergency. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could, you know, the, that reminds me the last time we were at a store, we were at, um, bed, bath and beyond, uh, which we call bed, bath, Barkley and beyond because we met Charles Barkley at a bed, bath and beyond once, <laughs> but we, my wife and my son and I were at bed, bath, Barkley and beyond. And, my son saw that they had plungers where the plunger component was a poop emoji. Oh, <laughs> and uh, my son uh, and uh, I were like, yes, that is something we need. Uh, uh, How many and my did wife, you buy? we bought none because my wife was like, no, that's not something that we need. And ultimately, I think, you know, that is a cultural touch point of change, which is like, you know, are you open to whatever the 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 pop culture language is? Uh, you know, and 
do you does that hit you as funny or you know is that not you know your thing do you not want to think about you know the the amazing what i think is the amazing visual like mental image of poop solving poop like of of a poop emoji plunger like it was just it kind of blew my mind as like an inception thing but that's fantastic and my my son was just like this is funny and and my 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 son and I were like, what do you think? And my wife was like, no, I don't think so. So we don't have the poop emoji plunger, but somebody does somewhere. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'll have one soon now because I just can't I can't pass that up. Yeah. my wife will hate it too, but you know. Yeah, but you got three kids, so and six toilets. So you outnumber her. <laughs> you got the votes. You can go to Bed Bath Barkley and Beyond and get. You can get the votes you need. Kevin, I'm enjoying this talk about uh, culture and its power in our organizations, but we would be remiss if we didn't give you the opportunity to participate in something we call Stuff Designers Love. <laughs> so I, we moved uh, from Philadelphia uh, to the Washington, D.C. area to Northern Virginia recently, uh, and it's been really interesting to me to think about parenting as a digital experience. So like, you know, how do you know what's going on in school? How do you know what the school assignments are? How do you know what the after school activities are? How do you pay the fees you need to pay all that stuff? And as, as a designer, I love it when um, somebody actually takes the time on the PTA committee or one of the teachers that's designing uh, something that parents have to interface with to say, what's the actual job that this thing has to, to do? Um, and I'll give you an example of when that didn't happen. So my son is in a musical that's going to be next week. We needed to buy tickets for the musical. So if your child's in a musical and the, the, the musical is three nights, they're just three, performance, three performances. Let's say your child's in like a major role. You know, it doesn't matter. Your child could be in the chorus. It's just you want to see it, right? So what's the most likely job? Like, what's the most likely thing you're going to buy? If you're going to buy tickets, what's the most likely purchase? Like, you're probably just going to buy every night. Every night. Yeah, absolutely. My, my daughter was in a musical last weekend, and I went to all the performances. Yeah. Like, if, if there's course. multiple performances, you just buy. So yeah. the thing that was missing in the purchase was that option. I had to literally pogo stick in and out of each night, add two tickets, go back up to the top, go to the next night, add two tickets. I couldn't just like say two tickets, how many nights, all nights, like just an all night option. And there are times when as a parent, somebody somewhere in some system takes the time to ask that question. Like what's the most likely use case here? What's the actual job? Um, one of the ones that I've seen it done well is is paying for school lunches. So there's a couple of commercial systems that allow you to make deposits in your you know school lunch account for your 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 child so that they have money in an account when they go pay for lunch, um, you know, rather than paying in cash. Uh, and I don't even remember. I think when I went to school, we paid in cash. Yeah, we I paid for lunch in cash. Oh, I paid for sure. lunch in cash for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only payment bullies will accept. Yeah. 
That's true. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you, you can't uh, give your parents like lunch money account to your to your bullies. Like I guess they, well that they take your number, like sure. the number that you punch in your student ID number. But um, uh, I feel like I'm contributing to bullying now. Um, but uh, the systems that I've used to to make deposits in my son's account, those are usually like. Uh, I remember Jared Spool used to talk about usability using the metaphor of uh, it was uh, some agricultural commission where it was just a website with two buttons. It's like, do you have hay or do you need hay? You know, mm-hmm. and you go and you press the have hay button or the need hay button. Like when I go to make a deposit in my son's account, it's like, um, oh, y- you get an email that says you need to make a deposit. Your balance is low. You click on that link. It goes right to the entry form. Your bank account is already keyed up and you just say, you know, this much money and then you hit submit and it says done. Like that's, I love those kinds of experiences as a parent in this day and age because so much parenting uh, in terms of the relationship between a parent and the school is done via digital now. Um, So when it's good, I love that. When it's bad, I hate it. Yeah, it's and in my experience, it's mostly bad. Like, there's just like uh, it. It's fascinating to me that you like get these communications from from you know the school, and you're just like, what are they even thinking? Like, you'll get an email that has no content, says we have a new announcement, and there'll be a link. Click here, or you know they'll put like you know you know, word documents into, you know, into a, an email, which is like, like from a security point of view, it's like a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to do. But yeah, yeah. that's just like the standard operating yeah. procedure. It's like, we have some content for you open this, you know, and well, that's all that you get. That's a, that brings up an interesting thing related to the cultural discussion, which is where we've evolved more mature practices and, and methods and protocols around design are not, places that are the most important to us societally, uh, emotionally, like we don't have the head of product design at the public school system. We don't have an, we don't have engineering squads at the public school system, but man, what if we did, you know, Uh, that's, uh, and that's why I love, you know, the work of, of uh, places like uk.gov and, and the ATF and the U S digital service, mm -hmm. because they're actually trying to take the models that work in digital products and do them in in a public service way. I just would love to see it actually done at scale, smaller scale, where it's like, you know, the community center has a head of digital product, mm-hmm. and and you know the the nonprofits. And I know it's there are some the big ones, but man, that would be crazy if like you if you could participate in usability testing regularly around the systems you use as a parent. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I agree. Of course, as designers, we would provide horrible feedback. (laughs) (laughs) We'd never be happy with it. Oh, you should. Yeah, I think with, uh, you know, Jared Spool's like, you know, 100 year mission to get rid of all the bad design in the world. um, That's that's actually the lengths that we'll have to go. You'll have to have a head of, you know, design at the elementary school. Everybody's a designer, right? That's right. Or are they? (laughs) <laughs> to be continued that's fantastic <laughs> well let me tell you something i love is the book meeting design for managers makers and everyone by kevin m hoffman the book is really great I, i've been enjoying it i was brushing up on it over the last couple of days getting ready for this show 
And one of the things that really jumped out at me about it was that it has a lot of really good practical advice that goes well beyond what I expected based on uh, the title of the book. So um, I noticed that uh, you have a lot in the book talking about um, essentially how the, the culture of the organization influences the meetings and the meetings influence the culture. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, first of all, thank you. I really, I'm really glad that, um, it's always good to hear that somebody gets more out of anything that you do than, than they expect. Um, and I'm really glad that you caught up on that. Like my goal in writing the book was not to, there's so many really good books out there about like, here are recipes for agendas and ways you could do different meetings. I tried to do some of that, but I, I really spend most of the book. I, I was trying to give people the, an ability to design their own things um, when it comes to meetings and, and mm. ways to think about meetings as their relationship to the, the organization that they're in and to both advocate for getting what they need out of that relationship, but also being able to influence that relationship. So, um, so that makes me feel good to hear you say that. Well, thanks again to our guest, Kevin M. Hoffman. Um, Kevin is the author of Meeting Design, which is available on Rosenfeld Media. That's on the Two Waves imprint, right? It is. I think uh, all of the books now are sold via uh, rosenfeldmedia.com. So you can get it there or Amazon if you want uh, Rosenfeld to get a little bit less money. So I would say buy it on Rosenfeld. Well, to continue this great conversation, you can find Kevin on Twitter at Kevin M. Hoffman. That's with two F's and one N. And don't forget to su subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't have a preferred podcast app, we recommend Overcast. It's available on the iTunes App Store. Or learn more at overcast.fm. And uh, you can also follow uh, Roman at, at Stuperman. Um, and I am at LA King, not LA Kings. That's a hockey team, and it's not me. Um, and you can also uh, follow our Twitter account at UX Like Us on Twitter. And UXLikeUs.com. We've got all the things down. We've got all the medias of social. Cool. As long as I'm better than that guy, I hate that guy. <laughs>